Hello and welcome to Hack Chats for this, my episode with Mark Matthews. During the course of this conversation, we covered topics of his career as a big wave surfer before moving into one as a public speaker. Obviously, we talk a lot about the horrific injury that would change his life, but I think we actually went in much more depth than just that. What I found particularly interesting and I can definitely learn from is this idea of the science of gratitude and the benefits that this has not only to your mental but also your physical recovery and well-being. Now this isn't a new topic, it's actually something I've heard Ken Ware speak about, so you should definitely go back and listen to that episode. And also in a book I'm reading at the moment written by Mo Gordat, he talks a lot about the theory behind happiness. And part of that is, of course, gratitude. Um, so there's a lot to take out of this conversation. I really do hope you enjoy it. Here it is, my episode of Hack Chats with Mark Matthews. Mark, I need to begin by saying that I feel like a total fraud um, because I'm sure there's loads of people in the surfing world or even professionals that would love nothing more to sit down with you and pick your brains about surfing. Like I've mentioned, I've done seven lessons. I'm a complete beginner. I've perfected standing up on the sand. That I've got down. Mate, you're ready for some big waves. Yeah, I'll get exactly. you out there. No worries. So yeah, any, 20 foot or so. Anything that's even like... The, the amount of wave of like a child kicking its feet in a bath is too much for me. That's that's where I'm at with my surfing. That goes with your accent, mate. Don't worry. I know. Trust me. I've been, a, I've been a, like a surf school teacher when I was young from for like 16 onwards and taught the good old pommy backpackers like all through my summers. And it was one of the funnest experience ever. But yeah, it's a, a common thing when you come from uh, just like places with zero surf and you just don't grow up around the ocean. The I know. Bath high waves um, can rattle you a little bit. But I've never met a nationality of people who adopt to adapt to scary things better. Like, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is good to have this accent and people just lower their expectations. Yeah. So you'll, you'll be crap. Yep, you're exactly as bad as we thought you'd be. Now, you're a man who... It appears to me he's had effectively two careers. You know, you've had um, both of which, by your admission, you feel didn't come naturally to you. And I think that's exactly your approach to failure and to fear um, that makes you a perfect, perfect, perfect guest for this show today. Um, so I want to start by obviously talking about your surfing career and, and your early days on the water in Maroubra. So, you know, what, what were your first memories of surfing there? Uh, my first memories were surfing with my dad and my mom and my sister. Like we all surfed together. My dad surfed when he was young and then um, he gave it up when he studied medicine. He, he went on to become a surgeon, then just too busy to surf. And uh, we actually moved to England for a period of our time. So mm -hmm. there was zero surfing going on. But then when I started to uh, want to surf, he took it back up. So he was like relearning it all over and getting back into it as well. So it was... Um, I have really fond memories. Um, I, I do like going on trips down the coast with other families and other kids. I, I was always actually like the more scared kid when the waves got a little mm. bit bigger. That's why I say I don't feel like I was just born fearless or like with this aptitude to deal with scary situations because just in that small community of, of other kids that were surfing, I always felt like I was the more nervous one. And it, when it got big, it was like, me sitting on the beach watching or like moving around or or it was like my mum having to come out and help me and get me back into shore so uh, lots of fond memories a couple of scary ones like i have one really um 
clear memory in my life of being held underwater when I was probably around 11 or so. And I think it scarred me a little bit. Um, it probably set me back with my surfing back a fair bit. Um, but then just, I, I can still remember clear as day the moment that I, I went from riding a, a broken wave, so a whitewash wave, and what that feels like to then riding my first like open face green water wave. And it's like, I can still remember that exact wave and the feeling of it clear as day. It's the best feeling I'd ever felt at that point in my life. And from that point on, I was just addicted. You were hooked. Yeah. Uh, how do you then go from being a kid who's scared of surfing, who like you say your mum used to come save you from the waves, which might be even less cool than being the British guy, Kate and Sun Cream, nose diving every wave. <laughs> um, how do you go from being that kid who's afraid of it to not just becoming a surfer, becoming specifically a big wave surfer. How does that happen? I, I have looked back on my life and tried to figure this out because I'm fascinated with performance and what makes people good at different things in their life. And um, so I've tried to kind of go back and self-analyze how I ended up being able to do that, like what motivated me to do it. And I think in retrospect, looking back, a lot of it, like I, I did have seemed to have like a really strong drive to want people to like me and to get respect from my friends and and even my family and and get attention like i don't know if that was um kind of that driver initially that made me push into surfing and want to be good at it and i think possibly because my dad was so busy like being a surgeon so i didn't like it's not like i was neglected by any stretch of the imagine but i didn't get to see him all that much like it was like for me to get his time and his attention, it was mm. it was kind of difficult. And I wonder if in a, in a way that that was actually really beneficial for me because I was really driven to impress him initially. And uh, he loved surfing, you know, because he grew up surfing. So when I did things that were good in surfing and he was impressed like that, I think that was actually my real initial motivator. And then that kind of, as you naturally get a little bit older and um, you don't care all that much about your parents <laughs> adoration you, you think they're the dorkiest people on the planet when you hit about 14 yeah then it was just the people around me and i growing up at, at maroubra beach there were some amazing surfers down there and and i just wanted their respect like they were the older guys that i looked up to and um yeah i think that's what made me take the next step in just going from a kind of everyday young kid surfer to wanting to become a professional surfer because I could see in particular Kobe Abaddon, who was about five or six years older than me. And I lived just around the corner with him. And he um, he was a professional surfer at that point. I was probably 14 and he was like 19. And he was just getting paid all this money mm. to travel around the world and surf. And like, he always just had the coolest car <laughs> and the hottest girlfriend. And I'm like, when you're 14, 15, you're like, that is the life that yeah. I want, I'm doing anything i can <laughs> to get that and and i think they were just like a couple of the different motivating factors that um that got me over the edge and 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 pushed me into first surfing a little bit bigger waves and then i think like the fear that i had in surfing like that was the first fear that i overcame in my life mm. so it was like the process of overcoming that fear like that's where i learned that that was possible and how good it felt like to have something terrify you and then it's like you put the effort and the work in the training and then you build the skills and the knowledge and you master it 
and then you can go out into waves that used to terrify you and then you can feel comfortable and surf and enjoy it it's like i fell in love with that process like that learning process that overcoming fear process and i think that's just helped govern other aspects of my life because now didn't give me the skills in other area of my life to deal with fear but i just or i know that that's possible you know to be average at something scared of it but if you put in the effort you can master it get over the fear and still be you know relatively good at it so mm. I, I think i'm lucky that surfing taught me that process and and that i fell in love with that process so from there you know you you, you had the life you traveled the world you got sponsored by red bull you're winning all these events you know what what were those years like Ah, oh, they were awesome. Like looking back now, it's a little bit of a blur. It was just swell after swell after swell after swell. Um, I'd wake up every morning and look at a swell forecast, seven-day swell forecast all around the world. And, and I would see a huge swell forming, say, off the coast of Hawaii. Mm. And I knew in like four or five-day time, it would be 25, 30 foot in Hawaii. And I'd just pack my stuff, get everyone organized, get the team, get the jet skis ready and I'd be off to Hawaii, and then I'd land in Hawaii, surf huge waves for a couple of days, jump back on the computer, look at what's happening around the world. If it's gonna be good in Hawaii, stay in Hawaii. If it's gonna be good in uh, Europe, fly to Europe and surf big waves. So I got to do that, specifically big wave surfing, for like 10 years. And it was amazing, but it did come with a lot of stress. You know, like it was, it's tough to deal consistently with with the fact that you're doing something that could kill you, you mm. know, like, and and then the travel, the 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 travel was difficult because you'd go through the time zone changes, sleepless nights, but then have to go out and surf um, yeah, yeah. huge waves, like uh, and, yeah, and then so it does burn you out eventually. And and I noticed in my career that the more expectation was starting to come on me with like performance in big waves and making my sponsors happy and getting the best photo and the best footage I could progress in my career. The more that was the main driver of what I was doing, it was like the more burnt out I got, I got and the less I enjoyed doing it. So it's been over time learning to kind of balance those things and just find the love in it and make sure I hang on to that's the, that's the majority reason, you know, just because I love riding those waves and feeling that feeling irregardless of the results of the sessions. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, when you talk about the fear of big wave surfing, there must be so many different components. Obviously, you've got the idea of a huge wave crashing on you. You've got the reef. You've got sharks. You've got the fear of drowning. You know, were, were any of those in particular, you know, playing on your mind more than others when you go into the surf jet lagged in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. It just depends on the location. If I'm surfing big waves off the coast of Western Australia, I'm nervous about sharks, especially mm -hmm. if they're, they're paddle waves. So you paddling around out in the lineup you're sitting in the one spot for a long period of time mm -hmm. and you know there's huge sharks around there even though the the you know the chances of coming across one are slim mm -hmm. it's definitely on my mind um and then it, it kind of there's the, the the fear of being held down by a huge wave running out of oxygen like that fear of drowning in big open o ocean waves mm. but that fear you can really train for because you can you can develop the capacity to deal with the hold down so i, I learned to be able to overcome that fear a bit better mm. um and then there's the aspects of safety equipment that, that's valuable in helping you there so then it was more the fears over time and especially now is 
the fears of surfing the waves called slab waves. So big waves that come out of deep water and break on shallow reefs. Mm-hmm. Hitting the reef is kind of that fear. And that's an uncontrollable. Like it's very difficult to control whether or not you're going to hit that wave. You know, yep. Barring don't wipe out on the wave, then you don't hit the uh, <laughs> reef. But it's pretty impossible to have a good successful surf session and not fall on at least one or two waves. So. Well, that, that's kind of at this point in my life the biggest fear is surfing those types of waves where i can get smashed into the reef you know? yeah for obvious obvious reasons, obvious reasons yeah. yeah well i guess i do want to go back for a second to this training for the drowning aspect because i've heard you speak about this on another podcast and that sounded in itself the training that you did voluntarily for that sounded more terrifying than anything that i could imagine so tell us how you train to stay underwater when waves are crashing on top of you and keeping you down there yeah well the only real effective type of training that you can do has to mimic the thing Mm. that you're scared of as close as you can and when when you're trying to mimic danger it's really difficult because you can't be too dangerous you know because then the thing you're doing itself is too dangerous (laughs) to do consistently but so what we do to try and um prepare for when a huge wave holds you underwater and tries to drown you is that I'll get a free diver who can hold his breath way longer than I can. Like they can hold their breath up to 10 minutes mm. and go to the deep water pools below the Olympic diving boards. So four or five meter deep pools, the bell goes off. We dive into the pool, swim to the bottom of the four or five meters. And then I got to get to the top to breathe just like I need to in the ocean. He's got to hold me underwater and, and you know, hold me down as long as he thinks sees fit and like, going through that pain of, of running out of oxygen while someone's holding onto you and kind of not knowing for sure that they know what state that you're in. Like you might black out down there, which um, has happened, but what? it's safe. It, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it is still safe. Um, but the process of wrestling at the bottom of the pool, trying to get someone off you while you're running out of oxygen, it's the most uncomfortable training ever, mm. but uh, it's the best preparation I find. Like that along with just being physically fit and healthy is um is what you need to do to be able to uh, manage that those moments in the ocean so that you don't panic when big waves are smashing you and you've got to train to you know during your training for that you're being held down for much longer than you have been by an actual wave is that right definitely it's always worse in the pool that's the only way you can make it try and like make up for the like try and make it real as possible is it has to be longer in the pool because there's always the element of unknowns in mm. in the ocean and and that doubt that tiny bit of doubt of what could happen there just makes it that much scarier so you have to make it a lot worse in the in the pool so that you know it, it references what's happening in the ocean and you manage that panic response mm. well yeah speaking of unknowns um october 2016 you're out surfing um, on a wave called Shipston, Shipston's Bluff. No, it wasn't Shipstone's. It was no. a wave um, down the south coast of New South Wales. Really um, quite a good name for it. It's called Killers. Killers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Similar type wave to Shipstone. So deep water slab wave. Exactly. Deep water, big wave breaking on shallow reef. So in order for us to understand why anyone would want to surf someone, it's a place called Killers. Explain to us, yeah, what, what, what makes that so unique? So when a wave comes out of deep water and breaks onto a shallow reef, Mm. that magnifies the size of the barreling part of the wave. So if you successfully ride a wave like that inside that barreling part of that wave, it's the best feeling in the sport by far. Mm -hmm. Like the best explanation I've ever heard of someone explaining it 
was um, the late Andy Irons and he was interviewed. He's like, what does it feel like to get barreled? And he's like, man, and, and he's like trying to think of it. And he goes, it's like God reaches out and touches you for a moment. Like and that, that was his response. And I was like, that is so, it's like this tiny frame, like second of unbelievable feeling. And, and that's what draws you to surf a wave that dangerous. Mm-hmm. And of course, on top of that, it makes for amazing photos and video footage, which is awesome for your career. So it's the combination of the two. It's like good feeling, but also good for the career. Mm-hmm. So what happened that day? I just picked the wrong wave and um, the wave was too big for how shallow it was. I tried to avoid wiping out and hitting the reef. So I tried to dive off the wave early and so that I could swim out the back of the wave, let it pass over the top of me. But it was too powerful. It just grabbed a hold of me, picked me up and just smashed me into the reef. I landed kind of awkwardly with all my weight on one leg on the rocks. And then the power of the wave just crunched on top of me and compressed me into the reef Mm. and i just felt my knee pop and blinding pain and then i finally got to the surface and just saw stars like the pain was so bad which is rare in um in the moments in the surf you have such high adrenaline Mm. when you wipe out that like i've broken bones and stuff before and, and had other injuries and you don't know that you've even done it you know that like You've injured yourself, but you don't know how bad because the adrenaline's so high, it masks the pain. This time the pain was so bad that it made me see stars and just like go so dizzy. And and because of that, I knew it was something serious. And I uh, woke up in hospital the next day, had a surgeon come into my room who performed emergency surgery on me the night before. And he told me that, um, that he managed to fix a torn artery that was in my leg but uh the nerves that run through my knee joint and uh control my foot they'd been completely shredded and torn because when i'd hit the reef i dislocated my knee so i tore every ligament and tendon that holds your knee joint together everything tore except for half of my medial like that was the only thing that was hanging on by a thread but with my knee separated when i was getting rolled around underwater and my knee was apart that's what tore through the artery in my leg and the major nerves and So he said I was lucky I would have lost my leg if I got there an hour later because of the internal bleeding. How did you get out of the surf with that injury? Just uh, my water safety team, like my tow partner at the time, Richie, a good friend of Mm -hmm. mine, pulled me out of the impact zone, like dragged me onto the ski. I was just screaming in pain and then took me into the beach, called for medical support. Helicopter came in, got me and got me to Canberra Hospital. But all of that was just blurry in my mind because the pain was so bad. So I'm kind of slipping in and out of consciousness. Yeah. And and not to mention they gave me a... Um, the ambulance office gave me a huge dose of ketamine when I was lying <laughs> on the beach. So that also makes you lose a lot of memory. <laughs> <laughs> Made me feel awesome though. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I was lucky to keep my leg, but a permanent nerve damage. So mm. my foot doesn't work anymore. Like I can't lift it, control it from my knee down still to this day four years later it just feels like burning pins and needles down my leg all the time all the time wow and um yeah it's at that point when i was told that the nerve damage wouldn't heal Mm -hmm. like i had surgeries to try and fix it but when they like so i'd be i'd go in get a scan and the doc this the the surgeon would look at the scan and be hopeful like he's like i can fix this i can get a bit of nerve from your other leg and put it in there and you know, you could do it. And I'd be all excited, like, yes, I'm going to be back. I'm going to be fine. 
And then I'd wake up after the surgery and he'd come in and be like, sorry, mate, when we opened you up, there was just more damage than what we thought. And um, it's not going to heal. You know? And eventually I come to terms with that. And you know, I've got a permanent disability. I had sort of eight different surgeries on my leg. And the surgeons managed to get it to a spot that was half decent. And I just slowly learned how to surf with the disability. Yeah. And, and I've got myself back to probably now four years later it's hard some parts of surfing are harder than others with this injury but overall i'd say i surf at 60 percent of of what i used to before the injury which is enough for me to surf big waves yeah not as well as i did before but enough for me to still get the excitement back which is um it's awesome because i went for i don't know a good year when i was in hospital lying in a hospital bed kind of just thinking that i wouldn't surf ever again you know or at best i'd be riding a bodyboard or maybe a longboard or something which isn't too bad like you're in the ocean but for someone that's uh, the way that i have for my life that that doesn't inspire a whole lot of excitement well i'm not surprised your your mind went there firstly the list of the injuries that i've read about was broken leg dislocated knee two snap ligaments major nerve damage an artery tore lengthways filled your leg with blood and you could have lost your leg yeah more snap ligaments than that yeah two, i think there's about four or five because <laughs> i got hardly they took chunks out of both my hamstrings to fix a bunch of them and then they oh. used some fake thing to put something else together but it's actually really strong now Pain, like it's stiff and sore but um it's strong because i've wiped out a couple of times since and it's held up so but the, that's a good sign the image that you took you said yeah I, I came to in hospital and i looked down at my leg and during your talk you showed the photo <laughs> that photograph of your leg I remember watching it and I literally grabbed the pillow next to me and screamed into this yeah, pillow. Yeah, it's horrible looking. It's horrible to like kind of, I woke up with a really fuzzy recollection of what had happened because of the pain, because of the ketamine. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, I uh, just knowing that I'm in a hospital room, but not really knowing what was going on and just being in crazy pain because it's like when you wake up, whatever drugs you took before is wearing off. Mm -hmm. And then I just looked down at my leg and I just saw this big steel frame bolted into my leg. And then all the wounds of the surgery, like, so they had to uh, cut my leg open to take the, the pressure of the swelling off. Yeah, it looked freaking horrible. How long were you then in hospital recovering after that? Um, I, it's such a blur. Like, it's so funny because my, I was talking to my wife about this before. You, Your brain seems to naturally just forget about pain like mm -hmm. it doesn't like if i look back at the experience now it wasn't that bad you know but like living through it, i've got the footage of living through it and it, i know it was horrible but and i feel like my wife was saying yeah that's so interesting because it's like when i had when she had her first baby she's like i'm never doing this again yeah, ever yeah. like this is fucked it's so painful and then it's like 12 months later they're like oh no that let's was easy again. oh just, let's go again yeah. <laughs> like so I feel kind of like that where I can't can't remember it as much and I can't remember. I, I know I did like, I, I'd say at least three or four months between I was Canberra Hospital and then into a hospital in Sydney and then out and at home for a bit but then back in for other surgeries and then in hospital again and back in and out. But I was in like a, a hospital bed in my lounge room because I could not sleep in my yeah. bed next to my wife. It was too uncomfortable. Um in my landry for almost a year like just 
curled up in the corner of my uh, of this shit little apartment i had in sydney mm. it, it was good initially because I, I was right in front of the water i could see the surf from this little apartment but when you can't surf and you can say, see the surf yeah. i just shut every window like I, I probably didn't have those windows open for a year i didn't want to see it yeah. and then yeah i was just hauled up in the corner of my um lounge room had my piss bottle that I'd fill up and my wife would have to come and get it and empty it and bring me oh. food. And like, oh, it was torture. What's probably worse for her than it was me. <laughs> she can remember every minute of yeah. it. And, and I just had this basket of all different pain medication and it was just pills after pills yeah. after pills trying to numb the, the nerve pain. Well, I definitely want to get to that. So you've got, obviously you've got, you're trying to recover from a physical thing. You're trying to recover the mental side of, you know, sort of self-pity and depression and everything that comes with being told right that's your career and, and passion over and then obviously you've got to come off drugs you know once you once you've got through seemingly the hardest bit inevitably you've got some sort of addiction to the painkillers after a year or how long you've been taking them what was that like uh, that was actually i can kind of remember that part clearer than mm. the the other parts of the pain like coming off the medication was freaking horrible and both of them like because they give you like a cocktail of like antidepressant type drugs for the nerve pain that just make you feel like a zombie. Like I hated them more than anything else. Mm. And then they give you opioids as well, but opioids don't necessarily work specifically with nerve pain that well, but they kind of just make you feel euphoric. So mm. in that euphoric state, you can deal with the pain better. Yeah. And and I, I was taking like the combination of the two and then the doctors are concerned like i'm kind of in that age group and and demographic that gets addicted to mm -hmm. painkillers i knew personally that i wouldn't you know like i'm not i know my body was getting addicted definitely like i went from i don't know five or ten milligrams of, of oxycodone so fucking hillbilly heroin would have an amazing effect on me to like i'd have to take 120 milligrams and i could still it you know, it wouldn't have that big an effect on me. So I knew my body was getting addicted, but I knew I was always going to be able to get off them. And um, I was actually more scared about the the nerve, the different nerve meds, mm. because when I did try and get off the nerve meds, it was way harder. Like I, I and and the 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 process was way longer, and I'd have to go back on them, and then I'd try again, and then I'd have to go back on it again, like. And then I started reading online all about it. And I found different psychiatrists and stuff who saying the dangers of some of those types of medication where they actually alter your brain. They make such drastic changes within your brain that your brain doesn't recover like after a wow. long enough period. And then I would find all the different chat boards of people trying to get off this medication. And they've been on it for 10 years. And no matter what they do, they can't get off it. Like it's just... It's too, they don't get back to normal, so they just have to take the medication. So I got really scared about that, mm. and I got off those, but I just kept taking the opioids because I figured, well, at least these ones make me feel euphoric. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, my wife always jokes, it's like, that was pretty much the most loving and affectionate you've ever been <laughs> in your life. She's like, smoking your yeah, drinks out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just got off the nerve meds and kept taking the opioids when I needed to for the, the pain but then i could as i started to be able to go back in the ocean and do a bit of exercise mm. that made it way easier to get off the opioids then because it's just replacing the sort of euphoric euphoria that i was getting from them with the adrenaline and euphoria you get from exercising like that made it 
way easier to um not saying that was easier but it made it easier to do yeah mm -hmm. and it seems that one of the most almost life-changing meetings that you had during that time was with a fellow called Jason who taught you well you sort of found out about the science of gratitude through through him so yeah tell us about tell us about Jason yeah I, I had always heard about like the benefits of being grateful and mm -hmm. like the ability to shift your perspective and stuff like that I'd heard about that but I'd never taken it that on board probably because I was like so lucky to have this awesome life of surfing around the world that it was like probably didn't need it that much you know but then when i was kind of at my lowest point in hospital just kind of the reality of never being able to like my career being finished probably never being going to be able to surf again knowing that i'll be disabled to a certain degree for the rest of my life like not be able to run really properly just all those different things um when i was at my lowest i just out of the blue got a message from this young guy who had read about what had happened to me on a surf media website and he realized from the story that i was in Canberra Hospital at the mm -hmm. time and um, he um, he was just like oh I made a big fan followed your career since I was young can I would you mind if I came out to meet you I'm, I'm in Canberra Hospital too he ends up coming into my room and he gets pushed into my room by his brother he's in a wheelchair he had like him and his brother been traveling around the world or planned a trip to travel around the world kind of when they were 18 19 finished studying and I think he had finished his trade and um, fuck, he went snowboarding, slipped on the ice, broke his neck, mm. complete quadriplegic. And it was just like, it's such a selfish response, but probably pretty natural. Like when I met him, it's just like complete, like a forceful shift of my perspective in that moment. It's like, okay, what I'm dealing with is really not that bad. You know, it's not even comparable to what this poor kid is dealing with. Mm he would give anything at all to have what i have you know so just from that point on like i noticed different things like i noticed the infections in my leg that from the su uh, surgery wounds that wouldn't go away they went away fascinating and like i started to sleep a little bit better i started to be able to manage the pain a little bit better and all that was different is just like a little bit more consistently not all the time but more often than not, I was lying in the hospital and and I was like kind of happy to be there in in regards to compared to that, like this is nothing, mm -hmm. you know? And that had a pretty profound effect initially. That's why I started looking more into the science of gratitude, like just to see if there was sort of any evidence or data like backing up what I was feeling. And, and there is, there's heaps, heaps of studies kind of just showing like if you can shift your perspective and you can cultivate that emotional state of gratitude, it does change your physiology. Mm -hmm. Like all chemicals and hormones and all that other stuff going on in your body, it alters all of that stuff. Like and, and that just makes your nervous system, immune system, all that different stuff function in a way that's more optimal. And then it kind of has that cascading effect. It's like as, as that your physiology shifts like that, it makes it easier to sleep mm -hmm. and sleep by far the most important thing when it comes to health and performance and just being good at life so it's like okay then you sleep a little bit better and then you can deal with the next day a little bit better and then it's just like that that positive feedback loop you know um so i kind of just focused on that a lot when i was going through the injury not always successfully like i had some <laughs> dark moments where no matter what i did it was uh it was tough to find the silver lining but 
I did it consistently enough and I think it made probably the biggest difference. Like, of course, aside from the support that I had from my wife and, and, and all of that, but just for me, for something individual that I could do for myself, just constantly shifting my perspective consistently throughout a day was probably the most beneficial thing I could do. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard you talk a lot about ways that you went about implementing that into your, into your life. So you talk about habit stacking and mm. these gratitude exercises and how easy anyone, you know, you don't have to go through a horrific, horrific injury like you have to, to benefit from them. Tell us a little about a, f a few of those. Yeah, because like, I'm, I'm like hyper neurotic. So if you do a, a big five personality trait assessment, like when people do strength weakness finders mm -hmm. or Myers-Briggs yeah. personality profiles, you know, like I, I rate super high neurotic, which kind of means like my, the way my brain functions and everyone's does to a certain degree, but mine's hyper focused on the negatives and just any given situations like this could go wrong. This is going wrong. This is going wrong. This is going wrong. So fix that otherwise you, yeah. you're screwed you know like that's just the way my brain works and i've kind of learned to deal with it throughout my life but it, it makes it hard to um be optimistic or feel the mm -hmm. gratitude like because you're just constantly going 100 miles an hour to avoid bad things happening yeah. you know so that i i just went online and researched different techniques and if you just google like gratitude techniques there's so many and i just I was kind of picking and choosing what would work for me and then the way I implemented them the best was the technique called habit stacking. Mm. So, which is basically take a positive lifestyle habit that you want to implement. For me, was cultivating gratitude. That was what I wanted to implement. But it could be anything. It might be something to do with diet, exercise. Might be skill development for work. Whatever you want to you want to implement. But you stack it on top of your primary habits, which are basically the things that you do every day mm. without fail. So you wake up every day, hopefully have a shower and brush your teeth. Like, like there's a moment of time that you do that every day. You probably do it without thinking all that much. You might sit down and have your first cup of coffee. You might um, commute to work. Like that's a, that's a big moment of found time that's, that's valuable. It's like could be fairly mindless. Um, have lunch, watch, watch your favorite TV series. Like all these different things that are habitual patterns in your life. The technique is to take the positive lifestyle habit and stack it on top of those and kind of piggyback off those moments because, man, there's not much time during the day. Like, yeah. And you're going to find this out when you have your first baby. <laughs> there is fuck all time in the day to <laughs> implement new things. But so it's like a way of finding more time and using the energy that you have in a habitual moment because you've got some capacity there. So I would just kind of like, like for example, so every morning when I wanted to have my first coffee, which was every morning without fail, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't let myself have it until I'd written down three things that I was grateful for, you know, like it, and, and make it a rule. And you can get someone in your life to police it. It's mm -hmm. like, well, get your wife to be like, you can't have that coffee until you show me the paper that you wrote down the three yeah. things you're grateful for. And the process of writing it forces you to think about it. As soon as you think about it for long enough, you have the emotional response, mm -hmm. you know? So that was one one of the best ones I was was sending a message like of gratitude to someone in your life. So it's yeah. like the double bonus. So it's like you're not allowed to sit down in the evening and watch any your favorite TV show, right? You can't do it until you send a message to someone in your life just thanking them, saying you're grateful that they're in your life and you really appreciate it and you just wanted to let them know. Like 
and then you when you write that text you feel the gratitude and the bonus is that you make them feel awesome too yeah, <laughs> you know and you strengthen your relationships and mm -hmm. it's like like this you can't be successful without strong relationships so that was like a double bonus one but just those different techniques were um yeah they made such a difference to me and they made a difference like in dealing with the the injury in recovering like so when i had to do the physio i, I hated doing the physio like it's real painful mm. and boring like for me i was like this is so tedious so boring but it's like stretching you know like exactly. stretching i know used to surfing big waves let's be real yeah <laughs> stretching's just painful boring like but i i figured if if I was in the mental state or the emotional state of when I was doing that physio of hating it and hating every time I stretched and hating everything I was doing, then I figured my body would be responding in a way like this was painful or this is like, I, you just this isn't good to be doing. So what I do is just, I created like a slideshow with photos of all the things that represented what I felt grateful for. Mm -hmm whether it was like photos of my family, my loved ones, my friends, of the beautiful country I live in or just whatever, like, and then had my favorite music. And then I just put my earphones on right before I'd start doing the exercises and just wait for a minute, put my earphones on, watch the slideshow, and then you'd feel unreal, you know? Like you'd yeah. feel grateful that you can actually do the, the exercise. Cause like, and in my head, I was like, I know Jason wouldn't be coming in here like complaining about, being able to walk into a friggin' thing and do, you know, do some physio, like, so, and then in the, in that state, when I felt like I was lucky to be doing this boring exercise, it's just like my body responded a little bit better to the exercise, mm. you know, and, um, yeah, so that, just a bunch of those different techniques, they helped recover from the injury, but I, th I've just noticed they've helped in my life in general, especially yeah. the texting someone. Like, yeah. That's probably the best one. Well, since hearing you speak about that, I now read my book whilst taking a poo. So that's there the, you go. Uh, See? That's Perfect. <laughs> Found time. But it's interesting, you know, the way you, you should speak. send your message while you're doing it. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> idea. A few of them. It's quite yeah. a long poo. Not allowed to, you're not allowed to let yourself shit until you've taken the message. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting <laughs> to hear you, hear you speaking about, um, you know, that science of gratitude. Because, you know, we, we know we get told so often that comparing yourself is, you know, the, the death of happiness. You know, if you compare yourself on Instagram or social media, only negative things can come from it. But you the know, opposite way, it's though. the opposite yeah. of you, right? Which, <laughs> yeah. is, which is phenomenal. And it's cool. I to believe hear. in that. Definitely. Yeah. Like comparing yourself to just Instagram and like these fake lives on Instagram or just trying to find someone that makes you seem like you're shit at what you're doing. It's pretty easy to do that. Yeah. No matter what I could find, Shane Dorian or Kelly Slater or the best big wave surfers in the world and mm -hmm. like make myself feel like a very inadequate big wave surfer like mm -hmm. easy but that doesn't make me happy or be better at what I'm doing so yeah. it's just like compare yourself to someone who's got it worse or like just to make you feel lucky make you feel good about yourself yeah. you know you can look at people that are successful in your domain see why they're successful and implement some of the things that they're doing to make yourself better. Mm -hmm. But from that point on, the comparison should be either with someone that, you know, like it makes you feel good about yourself or just even more effective, compare yourself to, you know, who you were a week ago or a month ago as you implement the preparation or training or skill development yeah. and then be like, fuck, I'm way better than I was at this a month ago. That's what I do with public speaking because mm -hmm. I was terrible at that. And honestly, like, still to this day i'm pretty average at it 
if I go and look at the best speakers in the world, you know, I'm real average at it. But from where I was, like, it feels unreal to be as good as I am yeah. now compared to that. Well, that know? is what I want to speak about. So you're someone who describes yourself as hyperneurotic, describe yourself as hyper introverted. And I've heard you say that the one thing you're scared of more than sharks and big waves and reef injuries is public speaking. So how on earth have you become a successful keynote speaker? I do, yeah, see, <laughs> this is the thing. All of that makes it really uncomfortable for me to, to be a keynote speaker, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily make you bad at it. You mm -hmm. know, like the different traits, like they might make doing different tasks harder for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be good at those things. It just means that it might take more of a toll on you, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, so I know that I'm making a career now out of public speaking and I know I've got, you know, like this set capacity, like it drains me, you know? Mm -hmm. But I know I need, how many I need to do per week in order to hit my financial goals for the year. And I'm like, I could do something else that, is way more comfortable for me and probably be better for my health overall, like a little less stressful. But I figure it's like, I can't earn this amount of money any other way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I've just gone, well, if I put in 10 hard years of this, that could be worth 30 years of working at something other than that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I know I'm not necessarily suited for this line of work, but I don't feel like, I should not do it just based on that because I'm like, I'm going to push through and do it anyway because I might only have to work for 10 years doing this versus 30 years something else, you know? And then I learned to manage fear and stress and all that in the ocean. So I figure if I apply those same techniques to public speaking, I'll be able to get through it, you know? Mm -hmm. So how did you come to the decision that you wanted to do that as your as your career was that something you figured out during the rehab or when you realized you wouldn't be able to surf as big as you had you know was that i'd actually been doing it before i got injured all right alongside of surfing and and i was just so lucky to just through connections and networks within within surfing and my friends that there was a um a guy named shane shane tui who was a an amazing mountain climber adventurer and gone into the world of corporate training and public speaking he's like 50 or so now and um had a successful business in america and his best friend was one of my first sponsors at the time he had managed this sunglass company we became close friends and he introduced me and it was like mm -hmm. meeting him that would have been like 12 13 years ago he just taught me all about that world you know and coaxed me into it you know slowly even though I didn't really want to do it. And, and when I was surfing, I was like, I didn't necessarily have such a need to do it. Mm -hmm. So I'd just half-heartedly do it. Um, but then when I got injured, I was like, this is now all my finances are going to rely on this. So I better figure it out and put some, uh, put some effort into it. And I have to say, it's, um, it's actually a lot more rewarding than surfing big waves. Like surfing big waves is a pretty damn selfish endeavor you know well, like you get a whole lot of adoration for doing something crazy and like people like oh, respect you you know good on you you're doing that but that's pretty selfish it's not like i'm doing anything for anyone else other than myself by surfing and of course like providing for my family but now i get like awesome messages from people saying oh i listened to your talk it just really helped me you know i i really needed mm. to hear that at this time in my life so 
just getting that feedback is um is pretty motivating for me to push myself even though i don't love doing it but it, it keeps me um keeps me going so it's interesting you say you don't love doing it because actually you know as someone who's watched you do it one of the things i got taught at drum school is that you can't do anything unless you love you can't do anything beautifully enough for people to fall in love with you whilst you do it mm. unless you're love you're loving mm. the doing of it so we did an exercise on our first day at this clown school when they got two people on stage and they said all right boy and a girl talk about the weather improvise about the weather um but the boy you've had the best first day ever everyone thought you were funny and everything you did worked and the girls the opposite but don't be nasty to each other go and they started and they were boring as hell. And this guy, Philippe, hits his drum. You guys are boring, terrible. Oh, man, you're giving me like flashbacks <laughs> of when I was at school, like doing, like, <laughs> and you, like, you know, when you're at that young age and you, everyone has to do like a drama class. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, my God, it's my worst nightmare. But, well, you know, the guy <laughs> on stage, he goes, I don't understand. How can I be, how can I be funny and entertained to watch when I'm talking about the weather? It's boring mm. subject material. And the teacher goes, it's our first day of school. The teacher goes, put you on a fuck in this room. And they go, oh, no, come on. It's my first day. <laughs> and he goes, her beautiful Italian model in the front row. He says, all right, get your chair, Irene, and put it behind him. When he starts talking, I want you to kiss down his neck and I want you to nibble on his ear. <laughs> and you know, his eyes light up, her face falls. And sure enough, he starts talking about the weather. She goes for it and everything changed. His eyes lit up, his voice changed. You know, it was fun to watch, even though it's so talking amazing. about the weather. And that is, I don't like, know if you could implement that in the workplace these days. We'll get a green screen and we'll get your yeah. wife in. But um, that is how I felt watching you. You know, I think you're so passionate about what you're talking about. Um, and it's not necessarily just surfing, you're talking about failure and you're talking about fear and, and telling stories about your life that play into it. And I think that is what gets your audience, you know. Yeah. I'm surprised you say, you know, you don't always enjoy it because from the outside in, it looks like you're loving it so much. It doesn't matter that, you know, you say you're not as good as the best. You're not using crazy pauses or using your voice, you know, yeah. like whatever, Steve Jobs. Um, but I think that passion does come across. You know, God, yeah, I want to watch this guy. I don't know, it's, um, I guess it's just that balance. Like I've just learned over the years, like it's like, there's a lot of other things I'd rather do. Like I'd actually rather help another person who wants to be a keynote speaker yeah. to be successful at it, you know, like that. And I'd rather sit back and watch the, it play out. Like to me, that, that that's more enticing mm -hmm. and I, I'm more excited about that. Um, but I've just learned to be like, okay, if you're going to do this, do it well. And the way to do it well is you got to tell your story and you just, you got to relive it mm. over and over again and, and manage to relive the story to feel the emotion as you go through it. Which, um, so when I'm in the moment telling it that I'm not even thinking, so it's not like I don't like it yeah. while I'm doing it because I'm just kind of not even thinking whether I like this or not. I'm just like reliving the thing over again, you know? Yeah but it's just exhausting you know it's like for an introvert this might be opposite for you i don't know because mm -hmm. if you were excited to do drama and yeah, to, yeah. you know you might be a little more extroverted than True, me yeah. but for us introverted people and the introverted people in the audiences it's like it's not like you don't like socializing and be around people like you love it especially like people that you know like and your friends you mm -hmm. love it right but it's exhausting yeah. And and that's like that main difference. Whereas you might, when you social, get energy and feel energized from it. I, I come away from doing a talk or or being out at dinner with friends, and I'm wrecked. Yeah. Like I'm so tired. So it's just like, it's 
stre- like it's stressful in a way that it consumes a lot of energy. But I think to your point, maybe in the moment when I'm telling the story, I'm just engrossed in the story that that I don't necessarily love or hate it. Mm. But the moments in the lead up to it, I hate it. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there just probably is a part of me that's. It's like in general. Um, I've slowly trained myself to be addicted to the anxiety and the nerves because it's like right. that's was dealing with surfing. It's like you fall in love with that, even if it's subconsciously. It's like your body or your system falls in love with the high mm. of doing it. So even though consciously, I'm like why do I put myself through this, you know? But your body's probably addicted to it. It's like the same as when you're addicted to painkillers. It's like, you know, if you keep taking this, it's going to ruin your life. Mm. And, you know, consciously, you don't want to do it, but your body wants it. So in some regards, I'm like, over the years, I've probably slowly become addicted to nerve-wracking I think people can relate to that. I think a lot of people get nervous before giving a speech and then give it and then afterwards, like, oh, that wasn't that bad. I want to do that again. Yeah, there is a high after it, for sure. Like, it's like, all that the tension releases and you're like oh yeah it felt good and it's when you get a laugh on stage or like mm. applause or like i can see people getting emotional when when i tell that story and they come up and thank you mm. like let's be real like that's as good as it gets like people um kind of giving you positive feedback about you doing something that you're so nervous to do is you know that's highly addictive as well yeah, it's yeah. like really nice and when man when i get messages like I got a message from a lady a little while ago and she was just like, um, I was a single mom working three shit jobs, had two kids and I was like just in this dead end, like to her dead end phase of her life. She goes, I heard you speak and it triggered something in me and like now she's got a really senior job in one of the world's biggest tech companies, like manages a team of like 50 people and is an amazing mom all in the one like, not saying that like she did that but she's like it's just something in that moment triggered me that i needed to make a change and stop thinking that i wasn't good enough to be that person you know and when i read that i'm like fuck that's pretty damn awesome you know like i I like to do that you know for sure i would just like to do it not being on stage (laughs) (laughs) what's your what's your relationship with surfing like now you do do you have dreams of getting back to that level you were before and competing and traveling the world or are you sort of happy to just do it for fun now and concentrate more on your speaking i go in and out you know Mm. like it's when you're a professional athlete or something it's very difficult to let go of what you were doing and like it's a big part of your personality like Mm. everyone knows you as the big wave surfer and so it's hard for me to let that part go but like the competitive and and career aspects and goals and winning awards and stuff. But when I think about surfing big waves with no expectation from sponsors, without trying to get the best photo or the Mm. biggest wave of the day, none of that, like when I I don't think of any of that, I'm so excited to go and surf big waves. And I want to go and surf all the waves that I've been surfing throughout my life without that expectation. And maybe I'll surf them different. Like maybe I won't, get the biggest wave of the day or take the dangerous line on the wave Mm -hmm. but um i just feel like the whole thing's going to be even more enjoyable to me like it'll probably be a way safer because i won't take as crazy a risk as what i was doing when you know like i'm trying to impress people and get more sponsorship money and stuff like that definitely adds to the amount of risk that you'll take Mm. but i feel like i'm going to enjoy it a lot more now so 
And I can't wait to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Open up the borders, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, just to finish on, I'm, I'm interested to know what you think of, you know, if you go back to that day, October 2016, do you now wish you'd never got in the water? Or do you see that as a, as a necessary route to get you where you are today with this mindset and be in this place? Um, of course, I kind of do wish that I never got in the water. Like, I did have some unfinished business in my surfing career. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sucks. But then at the same time, like, the path that I'm on now is pretty damn awesome too. You know, like, I've got a successful speaking career, which... Is, I'm pretty lucky to have, you know, mm-hmm. and a big part of it is having a this story to tell, you know. Yeah. Like even though I I still did public speaking before this injury, I had plenty of other in, like wipeout stories. <laughs> like <laughs> it's pretty powerful when you get to tell people this story, you know. Okay. So um, in that regard, I'm I'm thankful for it. I I, I actually have that moment in my career that I'm that annoys me more. That kind of led down the path to getting this injury, but it happened earlier, like a couple of years earlier surfing Hawaiian jaws where I dislocated my shoulder really bad mm-hmm. and that was one of the biggest regrets like just this wave that I took and now you know like looking back if I didn't do that wave oh. my career is totally different you know like yep. I missed out on surfing in the Eddie Aikau that this prestigious big wave event that I'd been trying to get in for 15 years and that would have been the year I got into it oh. but I dislocated my shoulder like two weeks before it ran like that that one hurts more than any yeah. yeah but there's always regrets if you, you can always find regrets <laughs> yeah. it's really easy to find regrets but i don't i just try not to think about it too much well thank you so much for, for coming on the show thank you for telling us your story too easy and it, i'm literally gonna go surfing now so if you beautiful <laughs> nice <laughs> cheers <laughs> Let me begin by saying a huge thanks to Mark Matthews himself. He was an absolute pleasure to sit down with, to pick his brains. Uh, I travelled down to the Gold Coast for this one and and he's a really interesting and kind and generous man who I think you can agree has got a beautiful way of telling a story and what a story his is. Um, So yeah, thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please feel free to share it with all of your friends. You can like it, you can subscribe it, you can rate and review it. I know that's really helpful for getting this thing watched and out there as much as possible. So thanks again, and I hope you tune in again to next week's episode of Hack Chats.